Hello there and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with stories beyond the horizon. My name is Matt Valor. We are in the very beginning of Genesis this week, chapters two and three. We're following a structure in this podcast where we're hoping to go through the entire narrative arc of the whole Bible. I've no idea how long it will take, but it'll be a while. We're going to do big chunks at a time, though, except for these first few chapters of Genesis, because they've been so influential in the world. We're carving them up and doing them in in just a couple of chapters at a time. So we're here in Genesis 2 and 3 in what I'm going to go out there and claim are the most influential and famous chapters of the entire Bible. It's the story of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve. Whether you're religious or not, whether you know the Bible well or not, pretty much everybody knows this story, that God creates Adam gives him a load of trees with fruit and says, you can eat any ones you like, but not that one. And then he makes Eve from Adam's side. And then the snake says to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat all the fruit? She says, we can eat the fruit, but just not that one. And the snake says, you can eat that one. So she does. And then God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. It's the archetypal paradise lost in western civilization this is the story of how we had it all and lost it all it's the story of the original sin it's the drama of disobedience it's that god made everything if only we could have kept that one rule then we would have been okay but instead we've been cursed with misery and pain in childbirth and hard labor to make food from the ground. It's a story that's occupied psychotherapists and philosophers. Is it the prohibition of that one tree that gives rise to the desire for that very fruit over all the others? And you just remember the times you've seen a child told they can't have that particular toy and then they suddenly want it to know that's exactly how desire works. But in this episode, I want to tell some different stories about the garden in Eden. I want to tell a different story that I will claim is actually the major way that today this story is read. Not as tragedy, but in fact as triumph. And then I want to show why that story is in fact problematic and why we need a different more disorientating translation of this founding narrative that can help us get under the skin of those powerful forces that have shaped and continue to shape the world in which we live these are forces to do with gender identity economics politics and the entire way we construct our idea of what it is to be a human being A few years ago, I read this story of the Garden of Eden, a simplified version of it. I read it to my daughter, who was only about five or six at the time. And we finished this short account. And she looked at me and said, I don't understand why God lied. He doesn't seem very nice. Why is he lying? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he said that if you eat the fruit, you'd die. And they ate the fruit and they didn't die. He lied. Well, this to me is the absolute central point of the problem of historic interpretation of Genesis 2 and 3. The gods lie and Eve calls their bluff. 
I've produced another translation of this text. I'm not going to read it all because uh, it will take too long as part of the episode. But I am going to start a blog on the Bible Pirate website, BiblePirate.com, uh, called the Unauthorized Version. So you'll be able to find the whole uh, translation of these two chapters there. But let me delve into some key points from this translation to tell a different story. On that day, Yahweh of the Elohim made the earth and the heavens, where no plant or herb had yet grown. He had not yet made it rain, and there was no one to farm the soil, but a spring would bubble up and water the whole face of the ground. On that day, Yahweh of the Elohim formed Adam, the earth creature, from the dust, and breathed life into its nose. Yahweh of the Elohim planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed the Adam there, he also grew many trees in the garden, trees of beauty and fruit, and in the centre the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yahweh of the Elohim appointed the Adam as a gardener and said, All the fruit of these trees is yours to eat, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, you will die the same day. Then he says, It's not good that this Adam is alone. I will make it a partner. So from the ground, Yahweh of the Elohim formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the Adam to see what it would call them. Whatever the Adam called a creature, that was its name. But when the Adam had named all of them, still there was no partner to help it. So Yahweh of the Elohim put the Adam into a deep sleep, took a piece from its side and closed up the wound. And with that side of the Adam... Yahweh of the Elohim created a woman and brought her to the Adam. Now, the translation of what happens next, I will leave until later. But at this stage, we now have a man and woman in the garden. And chapter 3 begins, The snake was more cunning than all the other animals that Yahweh of the Elohim had made. So he asked the woman, did Elohim say you could eat from any of the trees in this garden? We can eat the fruit from any of the trees, she replied, except for the fruit of the tree in the centre of the garden. Elohim told us if we touch it, we will die. But the snake said to the woman, you won't die. Elohim knows that if you eat that fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like them, knowing good and evil. When the fruit of that tree was ripe, the woman wanted to eat it and be wise, so she did, and gave some to the man who was with her, and he ate it too. Then their eyes were both opened, and they realised they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They could hear the sound of Yahweh of the Elohim walking through the garden in the cool evening breeze. So the man and the woman hid among the trees, but Yahweh of the Elohim called to the Adam, Where are you? And they replied, We heard you walking in the garden and were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree? The Adam replied, You gave me the woman, she gave me the fruit. How have you done this? Yahweh of the Elohim asked the woman. The snake awakened me, she replied. And so Yahweh of the Elohim speaks first to the snake and then to the woman and then to Adam, the man, and curses each of them in turn. Again, we'll come back to those curses later on. And then the, chapter three ends. Now the Adam gave the woman a name, Eve, a mother for the living. And Yahweh of the Elohim made clothes of animal skin for Adam and his wife. Then Yahweh of the Elohim said, look. 
The Adam have become like us, knowing good and evil. Soon they might reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever. So Yahweh of the Elohim sent the Adam away from the garden in Eden to work the ground, the Adama, from which they were taken. He drove out Adam, and at the east of the garden he stationed the cherubim and a swirling, flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this is what is so crucial for me about this story, that Yahweh of the Elohim, which by the way, uh, we said last time, the Elohim is the gods, and Yahweh is the name of the particular God within the pantheon of gods. This story sets out with that title. Most normal Bibles just translate that Lord God. I feel like that loses a lot of the historical character of the story. So I've gone back to these proper names to try and uh, resituate this in our imagination slightly differently. So Yahweh of the Elohim says, don't eat the fruit because on that day you will die. They eat the fruit, they don't die. And then Yahweh of the Elohim says to others in the plural, look, the Adam have become like us. They know good and evil. Soon they might reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever. We've got to kick them out the garden. So the whole historical narrative in Western Christianity that has said the reason Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden was because they sinned, it was a retribution for disobedience, is not supported by what is in the text of Genesis 2 and 3. It simply is not the case that they are thrown out of the garden on account of disobedience as much as they're thrown out because Yahweh and the Elohim are freaking scared that the human beings will now take the kind of power that belongs only to the gods and so they expel them with these curses to keep them out so is this story a tragedy with all the curses that man and woman must now live with as a result of their rebellion is this tragedy or is this story triumph the triumph of humankind against the gods. A triumph that moves from immaturity to maturity, from the shelter of the parent figure to the seizing of agency, even though it's a triumph that comes with a cost. As for each of us, we know, as we grow up, it's a movement that goes from innocence to shame. The freedom of nakedness gives way to the need to cover and hide. But if this story is a triumph, then it is the ultimate feminist tale, because it is Eve who is the hero. She is awakened by the whispering serpent. Her desire for wisdom, for knowledge, capacity to know the world more deeply is inspired, it's incited, and she takes action. She doesn't live within the parameters prescribed to her by the gods, but instead takes agency and as a result is rewarded with the knowledge of good and evil. And it is only because Eve, the woman, takes that bold step that Adam, the man, follows. Now into this storytelling I want to introduce some fascinating insight from uh, Professor Katie Edwards who is the Director of the Sheffield Institute for Interdisciplinary Biblical Studies at the University of Sheffield which is a mouthful and also a very cutting edge institution doing real groundbreaking work in the area of biblical studies. 
Katie wrote this amazing book uh, on the Bible in advertising using the story of uh, Eve and Adam as her focus point. The book's called Adam and Eve. What Katie discovered as she surveyed a huge quantity of data across lots of adverts is that the story of Adam and Eve is very well known. Even though, I guess, biblical literacy as a whole might be seen to be in serious decline, people know the story and react to it in quite visceral ways. One of the things that really got me about this is that there's a very consistent pattern that she's able to describe on how adverts that utilise the imagery of the Garden of Eden are structured. So firstly, Eve is always facing the viewer. So when you look at the advert, you are looking directly into Eve's eyes. She's always looking out at you. Then Adam, if he's in the picture, is next to her, looking towards her, never out at the viewer, always towards Eve, often sideways on. Then she often holds uh, an apple in one hand, sometimes with a bite taken out of it. Perhaps a snake is draped around her neck. And these are very, very clear, consistent features across all kinds of adverts, although they're particularly focused in the area of perfume or beauty products for women. What struck me most about that analysis is that the narrative seems very clear. The purpose of the advert is to tap into an already known story, which people associate as a story of temptation. And to say very clearly through the advert, give in to temptation, take the fruit. Now, what Katie Edwards does in her analysis is to locate all of this within what she describes as post-feminism. So this would be a cultural context in which advocates of post-feminism would say women now already have choice and equality. So feminism achieved its goals. We've now moved beyond that into post-feminism. But they would also say women are now sexually empowered to not just have to participate in society as sexual objects, but that they have their own sexual agency. And this is recognised by society as something that's valid. And so when an advert like this is structured and communicated in a post-feminist society, the set of assumptions that go with it is that this naked or nearly naked woman is sexually empowered She has the capacity to take for herself the status of being the object of a man's desire. So Adam is there looking at her, but she makes the choice. This is the logic of post-feminism. No longer is she subject to the objectification of man, but she chooses to, with her sexuality, attract the male gaze. And the advert plays to that sexual empowerment in order to generate a desire to be that empowered person. And so to buy the perfume, the makeup, or whatever else it is that's advertised with the image of Eve. One of the reasons for me this analysis is so significant is that it shows that actually the dominant way of reading this story is in fact as triumph over the gods. Corporations with advertising budgets spend massive amounts because they know they can tap into the consciousness of what people already think in order to provoke them to make a consumer choice. And if that's possible with this kind of advert, it demonstrates to me that there is already a very strong latent desire to screw the gods, screw their restrictions, their rules, and to take agency 
to take the personal choice to be the person I desire to be, to construct my own identity on lines that I choose and not ones that are defined for me by somebody else. But, says Professor Katie Edwards, post-feminism is problematic if its account of liberation and empowerment is simply to enable women to take the agency to be the sexual objects that they were already designated to be under patriarchy. What kind of liberation is that? What kind of freedom really is there? How many other options are there available to women in a society other than to rebrand themselves as some kind of sex symbol or to frame their entire being in terms of their desirability to men? It seems to me that the problem with the Garden of Eden narrative, even read as triumph rather than tragedy, is in the fact that the curse still is given. It's all very well to push back against the gods, but the gods are still in control. They do expel Eve and Adam from the garden. They curse them, and that is the reality they live with, however heroic the choices of the early human beings. Uh, Professor Katie Edwards' book, Admin and Eve, uh, you can get it on Amazon, but it's... Uh, like 75 quid, like many uh, academic books these days. However, uh, the Bible and Critical Theory, which is an excellent free online journal, you can find it at bibleandcriticaltheory.com, ran a special edition on this book in 2014. So if you go to the website, click on the link archives, and then select the Admin and Eve edition in 2014, uh, you find a bunch of articles responding to Katie Edwards' book. Uh, it's a really excellent collection. One of those is by Dr. Robert Miles, who lectures at Murdoch University in Perth in Australia. And he writes a very interesting Marxist critique of Katie Edwards' work. And one of the things he points out is that advertising tells one story while at the same time pretending a different story doesn't exist. The story it tells is the fantasy story that keeps the consumer culture alive. The story that is disavowed, that we pretend doesn't exist, is the real world story of how this product actually was created. Who was involved in making it? What cost really did it involve? We can't tell the true story because that would undermine the system. That means that there is the illusion of certain types of choice built into the systems that we now live in, but those choices are proscribed. It is like, you can have any fruit from any tree in the garden. I mean, just take a look around at all the trees and all the fruit. There's just so many you could have. But not that one. This choice is the very structure of consumer capitalism itself. You can have whatever technology, whatever phone, you can have whatever internet package, you can have all your different social media accounts, you can create your own profile which idealises your life. You have all kinds of choices over how you do that. But don't you dare try and live off the grid because you won't succeed. That's the kind of ideal of choice that consumer capitalism offers us. It's portrayed as limitless. You can eat all these different fruit, but there is always one that is off limits. Anything that would undermine the fundamental structure that has been set up. 
And this is not just something that affects us all, it particularly affects women. You can have limitless choice at what perfume you wear and what anti-aging cream you use and what hair products and clothes and shoes and jewellery and so on. But don't you dare try not caring about looking sexy. How then will you get ahead? You can have whatever career you want. You can be educated to whatever standard you want. You can have children and still work. You can be a mother and a professor and a CEO. But don't you dare try not to have it all. There is always a fruit that is off limits, that's banned because it opens up the way to a being in the world that is radically proscribed by the gods of the system that we now live in. The culture we inhabit cannot allow us to eat that fruit. And this is not just about choice. I'm recording this in the weeks following the revelations about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Many allegations of sexual harassment and even rape have emerged over the last few weeks against Weinstein and also against a number of other public figures. The Me Too hashtag on social media, which has empowered many women to come forward with their own stories of sexual harassment one way or another in their own experience. I feel like it's changed the conversation, even the consciousness of both men and women to be able to talk about things and demand different kinds of expectations from our being together in the world. One of the other responses to uh, Professor Edwards' work on the Bible and Critical Theory website is from Dr. Caroline Blythe from the University of Auckland, who writes about the ways in which she feels the narrative of contemporary Eve-based advertising legitimises the narratives of sexual harassment and even rape culture. She cites the ways in which Eve is portrayed as the femme fatale, the woman whose attractive charms cannot be denied, and the way that that narrative plays into male impotence in the face of female sexual empowerment, that a man just couldn't stop himself if he was attracted, even seduced by a woman who then decided to say no that the narratives of sexual empowerment in a post-feminist culture go with the counter-narratives of slut-shaming and blaming women who take on sexual agency as creating problems for men. The problem of male violence against women becomes a narrative of she made me do it. She made me take that fruit. You gave her to me, she gave me the fruit. And so here we are returning to this foundational narrative structured along the lines of gender. For Yahweh of the Elohim creates the Adam. It's unclear if this Adam is male or female. But at that point when Yahweh of the Elohim puts the Adam into a deep sleep and takes a piece from its side and closes up the wound... And with that side of the Adam, Yahweh of the Elohim created a woman and brought her to the Adam who said, and this is my translation, this is bone hammered out from my bone and flesh torn out from my flesh. She is woman who will take from man. And so a man leaves his parents and grasps a woman so they become one flesh. To me, there is much more aggression and violence in this story than has traditionally been acknowledged. And when Yahweh of the Elohim curses the woman, 
My translation is increase, increase the pain of your conception. Your children will be born in pain and you will long for the man to rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of the woman and ate from the forbidden tree, the ground is cursed. To me, there's a massive gender struggle going on in this narrative. The gods side with the man. That little poem at the end of chapter two, normally translated bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Yahweh of the Elohim has wanted to create the Adam a partner, but once she is woman, he becomes man and feels like something has been taken from him. And that then becomes the problem that he has to address. And the story is then not about him. The story is about the woman. It is the woman who takes the bold step to take the fruit and the man who follows her lead. But the gods enforce the system and they blame the man for listening to the woman. And so to read the story of this early part of Genesis and to have the character of the woman to be the one who is blamed for her taking initiative, for it to be the man who blames the woman and for the gods to blame the man for listening to the woman and to translate the end of chapter two in that light, that for this reason, a man will leave his parents and grasp at a woman and they will become one flesh. The curse of the woman, that your pain will increase in conception, not just pregnancy and childbirth. This reading of the text is the legitimization of rape culture by the gods. And it makes this, in my view, a text of terror. It's a text that's dangerous and has to be resisted. But to resist texts like this, particularly texts that have come over generations to take on the status of sacred, is not, in my view, to ignore it, to somehow ban it, outlaw it, marginalise it. It is simply to approach it differently. One of the things that regularly defines the way that people deal with biblical texts as sacred texts is the need to somehow validate them, to somehow feel compelled to make the interpretative move that if the text advocates something, then God himself advocates something and that this is what must be done in the world. And look, for this Bible pirate, I am implacably opposed to that way of using the Bible as a sacred text, if indeed it's going to be a sacred text at all. Because it's not the way that we make things meaningful, that we deal with meaning in texts. I value this story, this very, frankly, traumatic story as I read it, as a story that requires resistance. It's important to keep it there, to hold it in play, precisely to use it to expose the ways that this story is still being played out today in countless lives of women who suffer at the hands of a system designed to benefit men. Not just suffer economically, but suffer physically and psychologically, even spiritually. And so right at the start of this epic journey that I hope this podcast series will take us all on through the long journey of the scriptures, I think we start out with some serious contentions at play. Are the gods, is this Yahweh of the Elohim going to be good for humankind? And if so, is that good for all humankind or just mainly for men? And we start out with a painful rift 
between man and woman and every way that that might play out in the story to come. In the coming weeks, we'll circle round these themes several times, how we construct our own identity in the world, how we make sense of gender relationships. Is the gender of our identity essential to our being or do we have the capacity to construct our own identity? We'll look at the problems associated with all kinds of different points of view and most importantly, the different stories we tell that create possibilities or close them off. But for this episode, I want to stand outside of Eden with Eve and Adam, estranged, estranged from each other and estranged from the garden they had called home. This is a fundamental experience of being human. Perhaps particularly, we've experienced that in the last few weeks. Wherever we go now, we'll take courage. That's it for this week. Thanks for coming along for this voyage. Don't forget to check out the whole translation of these two chapters on the new blog at BiblePirate.com. And please get in touch. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Any comments you have, any subjects you want me to talk about. We'll see you next time on Bible Pirate with more stories beyond the horizon.